Let us pray. Loving God, we gather today in this sanctuary on Shaftesbury Avenue and from various locations online, and each of us carries our own personal feelings about worship and church. This might be a familiar experience or a strange one. It might be reassuring or it might evoke stressful memories. Whatever we feel about today's service, we thank you for the welcome that we receive here. We offer to lay before you our preconceived ideas about faith and ask for fresh perspectives. We pray for insight as we reconsider how the words that we hear this morning relate to our own lives and our society. As the seasons turn, some of us are excited by new opportunities, with schools and universities starting new terms, businesses seeking fresh opportunities, and the curtains rising on many events. Yet some of us may also feel frustrated or worried, wondering how we'll meet our responsibilities or fear that we may be losing out. We pray for serenity and for calm. Help us to accept that moods may change just as the seasons are changing, but God's love is constant. Grant us courage as we take a hard look at the areas of our lives where we need to do better. We're sorry when we act solely in our own self-interest and undervalue other people. We pray for a deeper understanding of the harms we cause, and we seek forgiveness when our behavior is out of sync with the values we profess. Give us a sense of your presence as we prepare for new challenges. Hold us together as a supportive community, ready to learn from the errors of the past and bold enough to accept new situations and appreciate fresh ideas. Let us now say together the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Loving God in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. The first one is the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10. <laughs> chapter 10 verses 1 to 10 <clears throat> since the law has only a shadow <clears throat> of the good things to come and not the true form of these realities it can never by the same sacrifices that we are continually offered year after year make perfect those who approach otherwise would they not have ceased being offered since the worshippers cleansed once for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, see God, I have come to you. Come to do your will, O God. On the scroll of the book, it is written of me. When he said above, you have neither, 
desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, see, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And now Psalm 40. <clears throat> Thanksgiving for deliverance and prayer for help. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the des desolate pit out of my miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Happy are those who make the Lord their trust, who do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after false gods. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. Were I to proclaim and tell of them, they would be more than can be counted. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, here I am. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. See, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O oh Lord. I have not hidden your saving help within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Do not, O Lord, withhold your mercy from me. Let your steadfast love and your faithfulness keep me safe forever. For evils have encompassed me without number. My iniquities have overtaken me until I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let all those be put to shame and confusion who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. <clears throat> you are, are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I started my sermon on Psalm 49 by referencing both Coldplay and Queen. 
Well, this week I'm going to start with my favourite band of all time, the amazing U2. Their third album, War, released in 1983, opened with a song entitled Sunday Bloody Sunday, which is one of the band's most overtly politicised songs. Its lyrics describe the troubles in Northern Ireland and their horror at what was going on. And it focuses particularly on the 1972 Bloody Sunday incident in Derry, where British troops shot and killed unarmed civil rights protesters. Here's a few lines from the song Sunday Bloody Sunday. I can't believe the news today. I can't close my eyes and make it go away. Broken bottles under children's feet, bodies strewn across the dead end street, and the battle's just begun. There's many lost, but tell me who has won. The trenches dug within our hearts, and mothers, children's brothers, sisters torn apart. Sunday, bloody Sunday, how long, how long must we sing this song? This bleak cry of despair at the end, how long, how long must we sing this song? is deeply resonant of much that we have encountered in the Psalms over the last few weeks, as we've been journeying with them on and off on our Sunday mornings. The line from the song that I think is particularly significant is this repeated question that comes up again and again in the song, how long, how long must we sing this song? And of course it echoes, doesn't it? The cry of the Israelites in Babylon, who lament in Psalm 137. Here our captors asked us for songs and our tormentors asked us for mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? That ancient cry from Babylonian exile finds its way into 1972 and then into 1983 and echoes down to us. How long must we sing this song? How can we sing the song of the Lord in the face of all of this? Now, you too, as a band, are highly biblically literate. Such resonances with the words of scripture are never accidental with them. They were church kids, or at least some of them were. They know also, I think, that singing and spirituality are deeply intertwined at an emotional level, as songs, both ancient and contemporary, can evoke joy and sadness and hope and futility. And we know this too. Hasn't it been amazing to be able to be back singing again together? I mean, the lockdown choir was great. Don't get me wrong. What a thing to do in lockdown. But isn't it great to be back? And it's not, it's not because we're better than when we were doing it in lockdown. It may be that we're worse because we can't edit it in the same way, but we're together. And the song and the emotion and the community, it captures something of the spirit of what God is doing amongst us. And songs ask deep questions of our souls about what it is that we are really longing for. And I think songs then invite us to sing that new world into being. We were doing that with our opening song, crowning with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne. That's kind of true, but it's kind of not true yet. It's the now and it's the not yet aspect of our faith. And as we sing it, it becomes that little bit more real.
in our lives. Well, it's not insignificant then to return to U2 and their album War, that the final song is a direct paraphrase of a psalm. The lead singer Bono chooses to end this album on a note of faith. And it is, of course, the song 40, based on our psalm for today, Psalm 40. Allegedly recorded and mixed in just over half an hour at the end of a recording session, this song went on to become the anthem with which the band concluded their live show for many years, sending the audience out into the world from the stadium, into a world of despair, singing a note of hope. I'll read it to you. I can't sing it. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pits, out of the miry clay. I will sing, sing a new song. How long to sing this song? How long, how long, how long? He set my feet upon a rock and made my footsteps firm. Many will see, many will see and hear. I will sing, sing a new song. How long to sing this song? How long, how long, how long? How long to sing this song? Well, I don't know what this song does for you at an emotional level. And if it's a song you don't know, I would encourage you to go away and look it up uh, online. Maybe it's not your kind of music. And if so, that's fine. But for me, I imagine myself as I hear it as part of a stadium crowd, 80,000 people singing along in unison with the band, singing of their hope for a new song, for a new world, for a new way of being. And I hear the crowd carrying on singing as the band leaves the stage one by one until just the audience are left to carry the new song out into their lives to make it their song. And I wonder what it would be like if we ended a service that way. We just were singing and singing and singing and the organ stopped and we carried on singing and we went out through the doors and out into the world singing the song of faith and hope that had entered our hearts. This is what Psalm 40 is about. And this is why I've chosen this psalm as the last of our series looking at the psalms. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. This new song that the psalm talks of well, it's most likely a technical term for what some scholars usually describe as the song of thanksgiving. A song that is sung after the psalmist has been delivered by the Lord from the jaws of some crisis. You know how it goes in the psalms. Oh, woe is me, everything's awful. But I will praise God. And you end up with this dialogue between a recognition of the difficulties of life and the rhythm moving on to, but I will praise God. Uh, the one we had a couple of weeks ago, Psalm 49, is, is unusual in that it's the only psalm that leaves you hanging 
The others all find a way to draw you back to a place of faith by the end. And all through the Psalms, you can trace this repeating pattern. We've seen it already over the last few weeks. So um, the great Psalms scholar Walter Brueggemann uses three phrases to describe this rhythm through the Psalms. And he says that there are Psalms or bits of Psalms that function as what he calls Psalms of orientation. So these are the Psalms that assert that everything is well with the world. God is in his heavens, people are where they should be. These are the great Psalms of praise. But when we were looking at one of these earlier in our series, we did have to note that this kind of psalm can tend towards becoming a justification of the status quo, even a mechanism for social control, as people are encouraged to see their place in life, their lot in life, as having been preordained by God, whether they're wealthy and powerful or poor and powerless. Psalms of orientation can become a bit like a certain kind of contemporary Christian worship song. Now, I'm not going to get into kicking modern music. Some of it's great. We had some fantastic contemporary worship at the wedding here yesterday. It would have lifted your hearts. Some of it's terrible. And the stuff is not about music. It's not about style. But what really gets me are those songs that allow no room for the complexities of life. No room for sadness or injustice or disappointment. The kind of song that is focused entirely and only on proclaiming the goodness of God. Psalms of orientation can get a bit much if they're all you sing. So Walter Brueggemann says there are also these psalms of what he calls disorientation. These are the psalms that are sung when the songs of orientation no longer hold true. These disorientation psalms reflect the reality that sometimes life just is awful, unfair, and intolerable. And whether it's illness or enemies or bereavement, the psalms of disorientation speak to God of the dark underbelly of human existence, articulating the truth that sometimes things are just not what they should be. Sometimes there's no justice. Psalms of orientation give way to psalms of disorientation. And then you get the third kind of psalm, which we meet today in Psalm 40. These are the psalms of new orientation, the psalms of reorientation. Walter Brueggemann says these psalms bear witness to the surprising gift of new life, which is encountered just when it was least expected. Psalms of new orientation recognize that the ship of life has sailed through a storm and discover that a new shore has now been reached. Having sailed through the floods or the hurricane, there's no going back to the harbor of childlike orientation. Psalms of new orientation are not some naive Pollyanna-ish 
assertion of optimism in the face of disorientation. They aren't the spiritual equivalent of sticking your fingers in your ears and singing a happy song to drown out the true reality of life's troubles, far from it. Rather, these Psalms speak for those who have been brought through the deep crisis, those who have made their journey into darkness and have experienced a faith that continues to speak truth, a faith that will never again pretend that all will always be well and that all will always be as it should be, but which is nonetheless going to continue to articulate faith. So Psalm 40 speaks of a new experience of new life and grace, of coming to know that despair is not all powerful and that evil does not have the last word. Those who learn to sing psalms of new orientation are those who have stared life in the face, who have experienced the disappointments and injustices and sadnesses of being, yet who nonetheless find themselves still yearning for God. The words of praise and trust that these new orientation psalms articulate are not bold assertions of goodness in denial of evil. They are rather hopeful expressions of faith found in the midst of the reality of life's trials. So let's take a short journey through Psalm 40 and see where it takes us as we come now to the end of our own journey through the raw emotions of the Psalms. It begins in the first three verses as the psalmist recalls a, a past petition and the Lord's gracious response. It begins with testimony. I waited patiently for the Lord, says the psalmist. And this indicates that the psalmist has done what numerous other psalms have been encouraging him to do, which is to wait for God. The psalms keep telling people to wait for God and the psalmist here says, I've waited for God, waited a long time. Waited in trust, waited in reliance, waited in hope. And for our psalmist in Psalm 40, it is only faithful waiting that will lead to God's salvation. Blessings are not available from God quickly or easily. Unlike those who seek easy and swift access to God's presence through the words of bold psalms of orientation, Psalm 40 knows the wisdom of waiting, of journeying through rather than trying to shortcut around. And it is this experience of salvation long awaited and longed for that puts the new song in the psalmist's mouth. A song of praise that still testifies to God's goodness in the face of it all. It is an astonishing thing, isn't it, to say that God is good in the face of human suffering. But our psalmist has discovered what many others who have journeyed through difficulty have found. Which is the ability to attest at the end of it to the goodness of God. 
By singing this song, the psalmist then leads others to put their trust in God's salvation. And so the next couple of verses in verses four and five contain a beatitude that encourages people to put their trust in God as the way to life that yields blessing and contentment. We may not get answers to all of our questions. We will not be granted all the desires of our hearts. Any faith that promises such things will ultimately be proved lacking. The path to contentment is not found in what we get from God, but rather from simple trust in God in the midst of life's complexities and complications. It's not for nothing that Jesus promises blessings on those who receive the kingdom of heaven like a child. Simple trust is probably as good as it's going to get. And that is very good. Verses six to eight then raise a question about appropriate worship. What does it mean, the psalm asks, to sing songs to God in the face of difficulty? What does it mean to even praise God in a world of injustice? And the psalm rejects easy offerings of worship, such as might accompany the quick and swiftly trodden paths to God offered by psalms of orientation. Sacrifice an offering you do not desire, says the psalmist. And again, I think here of those contemporary expressions of easy worship, where the words of the songs pound into the congregation and expectation of God's immediacy in all circumstances. Usually then the preacher asks the congregation to contribute generously from their pockets in the offering. Sacrifice an offering you do not desire, says the psalmist. Worship, you see, is not some prid quo pro quo arrangement where God's presence is purchased by our offerings of money or time. We do not power through our doubts into God's presence by dint of our own efforts. Rather, God comes to us always by grace in the midst of life troubles, drawing us into the holy presence as unexpectedly as encountering sunshine on a stormy day. And any offering we make, any sacrifice we offer, is always and only in response to what God has already done for us. So then we come to verses seven and eight, which presents the alternative to sacrifice, which is the psalmist's own written testimony in gratitude for deliverance. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O oh my God, your law is in my heart. The scroll of the book reference here is a bit obscure, but it may refer to the psalmist's testimony, maybe in written form to be presented in the temple. And if we were here a few weeks ago for Lanz's baptism, we heard Lanz give his testimony in church. And wasn't it powerful? That is what God desires in worship. The living sacrifice of lives offered to God in the midst of it all. The psalmist is presenting himself as a living sacrifice, and it is, of course, precisely the language that Paul picks up on and uses in Romans chapter 12, where all those who follow Christ are encouraged to offer their own bodies as living sacrifices to God, as the offering of true spiritual worship. 
Worship, it seems, is not something we do. It is who we are. And the psalmist knows this, having experienced the grace of God in his own life, which becomes in its totality an offering of worship back to God. But then we get a shift in verse 11, where the psalmist starts to petition God to not withhold God's mercy from him. And we should note this kind of rhetorical development occurs in several other psalms as well. This move from thanksgiving to petition is a reminder of the context of suffering that shapes the book of the Psalms. Clinton McCann says it well, whether individually or corporately, we always pray out of need, at least in the sense that no deliverance is final in this mortal life. You see, the journey from orientation through disorientation to new orientation is not a journey we make only once in our lives. The first time we face disorientation may be the most devastating, as the certainties that had previously sustained us come tumbling down. And the path to new orientation may be the hardest, the first time we have to make our weary way through the shadow of the valley of death to the soul-restoring pastures that await us on the other side. But we will go there again and again. And we will need to keep discovering what the psalmist of old discovered, which is that it is always a new song that needs to be learned. There is always a new world that needs to be sung into being. Those of us who learn to sing the psalms and songs of new orientation discover as we do so that these songs of praise take their deepest meaning when they're sung by those who have walked the darkest valleys, stood in the midst of the shaking mountains and experienced life when the bottom drops out of it. Life can never be the same as it was, but God meets all who suffer in the depths of their sufferings. And so as we gather in worship today to offer our own songs of praise to God, I wonder what new song we will learn to sing today in our lives. What note of grace will you hear today in spoken word or enacted sacrament that will continue to sound in your life as you leave this place? Will we see in the bread and wine, the broken body and shed blood of Christ, who suffers as we suffer and dies as we all must die, but who nonetheless continues to speak to us words of hope and new life that death and evil can never defeat? If we as God's people can discover our own songs of new orientation, as we patiently journey through the complexities of life, then we will find that we are learning to sing into being the gospel of Christ, sharing with others the good news that God is love and that God is good. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the pits, out of the miry clay, I will sing, sing a new song. How long to sing this song 
He set my feet upon a rock and made my footsteps firm. Many will see, many will see and hear. I will sing, sing a new song. How long to sing this song? I will sing, sing a new song. Let us pray. God of the whole world, we long for your kingdom to come. And yet in so many areas of our own lives, our own communities, and the communities and lives that we see reported through the news media, we know that your kingdom is very far from full reality. And we find ourselves trapped between the now and the not yet. So we pray for those whose lives are unjust. We pray for those who have had to flee their homes in Afghanistan and are now serving time in isolation, hotels, being served food, wondering what the future can possibly hold for them. We pray that our society and other countries that are welcoming refugees from Afghanistan will be hospitable and welcoming and inclusive. We pray for all those who have rallied as volunteers to assist in the settlement task over the next few weeks. We think of volunteer centers and organizers. And we pray for new life for a fresh start, that a new place will be reached for those whose lives have been turned upside down. We pray also for those still trapped, those who feel unsafe, who are worried that they're going to be targeted. And we pray for the work that is ongoing, to work with the Taliban, to put pressure on them, to be moderate towards those who they regard as enemies. And in the midst of it all, we recognise that it's terrible and we don't know what to do and we don't know how to help. So we commit it to you and we pray for those whose lives are unjust. We pray for those who are bereaved. We pray for those who have recently lost someone they love and we pray for those for whom the loss was many years ago but can still be tapped into at a moment's notice. We ask that you, the God, who knows what it is to lose your son, will draw near to those who mourn, that they may be comforted. And we ask that they will learn the new song of new life and new hope, not in denial of loss, but through the far side of it, testifying to the faith in you who draws near to those who mourn. And we pray for our own lives and our own friends and our own community. And in a moment of silence now, we hold before you the issues that are unique to us and our circumstances and our friends.
God of the cross, God of the empty tomb, teach us the song of new life. Reach into the deepest parts of our lives and draw from us words of profound praise, not in denial of anything, but because of it all. That we may then bear witness to your love for all people, that the world may be transformed as it hears the song we live into being and your kingdom comes that little bit more on earth as it already is in heaven through our lives and by our witness. And to this task, we commit ourselves in the name of our dear Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. And still staying with prayer now, let us dedicate to God our giving this week. Lord, receive the gifts that we have offered to you this week. Receive the gifts of money given through this church. May we spend them wisely and in your service. Receive the gifts of time and effort and energy and prayer and service that we offer both in this place and in the wider world recognizing that serving you is not something that happens solely in church, but through all of our lives. So receive our giving, we pray. Amen. So go into God's world with love, hope, joy, and faith in your hearts, and may the blessing of Almighty God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer be with you all today and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>